This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. And then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new, new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I make that time like mourning for an only son, and at the end of it, like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send famine through the Lord, through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria will say, as surely your God lives, O Dan, or surely as the God of Bathsheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. This is the word of the Lord. I have to say that when I uh, saw that I had been allotted Amos 8, and when I read through that passage... And I imagined whoever was reading it, and I didn't know it was going to be Ian, saying, this is the word of the Lord. I have to say, I did wonder whether I could say, thanks be to God. It's really hard. Really hard. I don't know how you've come here tonight. Whether you're excited, um, whether you're full of hope and full of life, whether you're... um, You've come today and actually you just need to know God's loving arms around you and you need to know his comfort. Um, Yeah, I don't know how you've come. On the face of it, this word that we've got tonight, it feels as um, as though it might not provide much comfort. As though it might not provide... 
um, much hope. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, go back and have another look at it, because it's, it's pretty hopeless. But the key to the whole of this evening, if you take one thing away from this evening, take this away. We are seeing a snapshot of the story. Okay? Have you ever been uh, watching a film and you've had to turn it off for whatever reason? You've had to go out of the room and leave it just as the cliffhanger is about to come. Just as you're about to find your way to the end of the film and realize what's happened. You've had to leave it and then perhaps you had to kind of go away and, and, and you don't really know what's happened. And it's, I don't know, it's been some weeks before you've gone back and found out actually what happened. That's kind of where we are tonight. Okay, so we're in this place where we're seeing what's going on with this story and it feels hopeless and it feels awful, but we're stopping at the end of chapter 8. That is not where God's story finishes. God's story is so much bigger. So much bigger. But in order to understand God's story and the the amazing, amazing grace that he gives us, we have to dive in and understand what goes on just here. And it's uncomfortable reading. It's uncomfortable reading. We're approaching the end of the book. One more week after this one. We're in the middle of Lent, so time for reflection. That's great. And it's only next week, in the whole of the book of Amos, that we see anything that points to good news. Okay, so just one more week to go. You can do it. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? So for today, for the last time in this book, we're still in the realm of bad news. It's almost as though there's some um, awful, dreadful comedian who's gone back to Israel back in the 8th century, a time of affluence and economic prosperity. And instead of starting their joke, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news? Well, they've been that, and they've just started with, well, do you want to hear the bad news? That's where Amos is. Do you want to hear the bad news? And if I'm honest, I say, no, I don't want to hear the bad news. I want to get to the good news. But sometimes we have to hear the story and we have to understand it so we know just how good the good news is. And believe you me, this is no joke. Just turn back to chapter 7, page 922. It's on the same page um, of the Bible that we looked at. You'll see um, in verse 10 to 17, it's a very small but important story that we've glossed over um, because we had to fit it into Lent. Sorry, if you've been reading it at home, you will have read it. Um, But it's the important story of a religious official who's trying to silence the preaching of the prophet. Amos' message was unpleasant, it was embarrassing, and it was a direct challenge to the authorities of the day. Do you remember how he went from Judah, the southern kingdom, to the northern kingdom, to Israel? And he's preaching this message of judgment over Israel. And his message was not welcomed. 
So he goes to the religious authorities of the day, a chap called Amaziah, in verse 12. He's the high priest. He's kind of like the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he's just telling him to shut up. Look what he says. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Get lost. Off you go. I've had enough. I don't want to hear this. You're not doing this under my watch. You see, Amaziah, this Archbishop of Canterbury of his day, Pope of his day, whatever, he wanted peace and harmony and Amos wasn't bringing it. You see, Amos realized that peace and harmony comes from the God who gives peace and harmony. And that doesn't come until there's mercy and justice and faithfulness. So justice and faithfulness are the core of his message. Justice and faithfulness, which can only ultimately be found in Jesus, without whom there is no peace or harmony. That's why this is here. And then... What we see today, well, it comes on the back of some pretty frightening visions. Because back in chapter 7, he's already had a couple of visions. He's seen locusts. He's seen a drying up of the deep in the fire of God's judgment. And both times, Amos has prayed for the people of Israel. And, and as he's prayed and he said to God, surely not, surely not judgment. You know, God in his graciousness and his mercy has said, okay, okay, Amos, I hear you, I relent. And so the people escape by the skin of their teeth and by the prayers of the prophet. And then he has a vision in verse 8 of a plumb line of chapter 7. Verse 8 of chapter 7. A plumb line, a measuring line to examine where the people were not aligned to God's word. And it was clear that Israel wouldn't stand up. And God's saying, do you know what? I'm winding this up. Things are coming to an end. And still the people don't repent. They don't turn. And so now we come to chapter 8 and things are looking desperate. In it we've got a vision. We've got an exposure of the crimes of the people of Israel and we've got a famine. So first of all, let's look at the vision. Verses 1 to 4. What do you see, Amos? What do you see? That's a great question. If you're a Christian, if you're a prayer... If you're somebody that intercedes, do you ask that question? What do you see? Do you ever feel God saying that to you? What do you see? As you look out, as you see people dying, as you see nations suffering, the sort of stuff that Pastor Yatta was talking about, as you see Russian spies doing their thing, what do you see? Not what do you see on the outside, but what do you see with God's eyes? And here, there's, Amos gets a, a prophetic vision. He sees a basket of ripe fruit. A basket of ripe fruit. The time is ripe for my people, Israel. There's a, there's a Hebrew play on words here for, for fruit and the end time, or the end So he's kind of saying, look, I see this basket of ripe fruit. Ripe fruit 
means that it's a ripe time for judgment. So you can imagine we're at a harvest festival here. We've got overripe fruits. Israel's summer is nearly over, and it's time for harvest. It's time for judgment. It's the same pun that Jesus uses in the parable of the fig tree. Israel is likened to fruit. Fruit which has got the appearance of health, but is ripe for judgment. And tell me, what do you do with overripe fruit? Somebody said earlier, well, you put it in a banana cake. That's not helpful. What do you do with overripe fruit? Most of us put it in the dustbin, right? And that's what God is saying. He said, I've had enough. It's an incredible verdict. Have we, have we become so full of the incredible message of God's love that we've diluted the concept to such an extent that we can't even take this in? That we read it and say, no, we just ignore that bit. See, there comes a moment when God says, enough. This is no longer a warning, but it's a statement of the end. And it's desperately painful for Amos to speak it. He takes no delight in it. And it's recorded for us so that we can be warned. But for them, it said enough. What a message to be given. The songs of the temple shall become wailings. You see, their religion hasn't warned them. If you like, they've got packed churches, but religion has utterly failed them to alert them to the danger. And God's judgment comes and turns songs into wailings. And so Amos sees crowds just sprawled like corpses, verse 3. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. It's chilling, isn't it? No prophet interceding anymore. No wail of complaint about injustice. Just silence. And when we see silence in the Bible, what do we, what do we know? Well, if you looked at Revelation, you'll know that silence comes when God's going to judge. The temple, the heavens are awaiting God's judgment. It's a painful message to his people for Amos. That's the vision. And then he goes on to describe the crime, verses 4 to 10. You see, here's what the plumb line has discovered, what God has discovered. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you might, this think, you might think this sounds all a bit familiar. But this is the last time when Amos highlights what it is that Israel has done wrong, what crimes have been committed. And it's not about what they believe. For God's people, it's about what they've done. What they've done with their hands. Any relevance for us? Is there a word here for us? The word against Israel specified four characteristics of a broken society. First of all, verse 4, profit before compassion. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. What mattered for those people was their profit, not compassion. Compassion. 
We picture a big, powerful farmer able to monopolize smaller farmers and then squeezes them into bankruptcy and then buys the land back from them at a knockdown price and then hires them back to work the land at a knockdown wage and then sells produce back to the little farmer at high prices. Oh, it's just part and parcel of society. It's the way it works. Well, God says it doesn't need to work that way. I don't like this and I won't tolerate it. How many of us have said, well, business is business? Profit before compassion. Secondly, verse 5, profit before worship. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Do you see what's happening here? When will the festival be over so that we can get on with selling grain? These people, they didn't absent themselves from church. <laughs> they didn't absent themselves from worship. They didn't need a Keep Sunday special campaign because they were there. They were sitting in the chairs like you and me today. They showed up. The churches were full. But they're so consumed by their business that they sat in worship and they didn't engage God, but they continually thought about their business and their next opportunity. Now, hear me. We all have wandering minds, all right? I have sat there and my mind has gone on to a million things outside of what we were doing here, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about minds that wandered. We're talking about someone a little bit like the man condemned by Jesus who's so concerned with gaining the whole world that they lose their own soul. If week in, week out, you're sitting there thinking, how do I make a profit tomorrow? What happens in my life tomorrow? What am I I doing tomorrow? What What am I building And you lose sight of what God's doing in your heart and how he's calling you. Then you're missing something. We're missing something. Don't put profit before worship. Thirdly, don't put profit before honesty. These people are skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales. You see, they... they, They fiddle the scales. They fiddle the price. They sold less than they ought for more than they ought. They turned the mileage back on the cars before they sold them. They're religious on the outside, but inside their hearts are rotten. We sit here tonight and we worship God and that's wonderful, but God... He doesn't see the smiley face. He sees the heart. He sees the heart. Fourthly, profit before people. Verse 6, you're buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You see, you don't care about people. You turn others into slaves just because they can't pay what's needed. 
Do you see, this is such a hard message. But God sees from heaven and he says, I'm going to do something about this. I've had enough. Is this relevant? Well, no wonder Amaziah, that Archbishop of Canterbury of his day, wanted Amos to pull out and stop preaching. I think this is relevant to us because there are injustices. These same injustices are highlighted in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, they're not highlighted to nations like Israel, but to Christians, to you and me. It's Christians who are warned about their dealings with the poor. Do you remember that verse from James? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, we can't brush this stuff aside. We may not see many poor or orphans or widows here. But it's the same truth. That God treats this so seriously. And I suspect that we'd better look wider and have a heart for proper justice and compassion to our brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone or wherever it is across the world. To our friends up in Cutslow. How much do we really care? Most times when we put the yardstick up against the church, we do so in a way that seeks to decide whether somebody is sound in their belief or not. This isn't how God measures things here for those who are his people. The churches are packed, but God's measuring line seems to be in how we're treating the poor and what's really going on in our hearts. So what of these crimes? Well, the Lord says, I will never forget their deeds. These deeds, these crimes... And because of them, well, what happens? Well, there'll be an earthquake. The lights will go out. It will be like mourning for an older son. It's like the plagues will come again. This is what happens when you persist in living in ways contrary to God. So what's the application for you and me? Well, I think it's, in a way, it's quite simple. We can't say that we're a Christian And live something completely different. God calls us to be wholehearted. We say we have fellowship with God and yet some of us walk in darkness. I think this passage calls us to say, God, I need you. I need help. I want to worship you in spirit and truth. Will you teach me? Will you help me? To be wholehearted. So there's a vision, there's some crimes, and then we see a famine, verses 11 to 14. I wonder if you ever think what would happen if you gave a child everything they ask for. Have you ever thought that? What would happen if you gave a child everything they wanted? Think of the chocolate, the sweets, the ability to fly, to, to never ever get homework to ace all their exams, to be better at football than Messi. What would happen in a world where you gave everything to a child that they wanted? What kind of person would they end up being? What kind of life would they lead? 
How would others see them or interact with them? And do you ever wonder what would happen if God gave you everything you wanted? Everything you'd ever asked for? Well, here we see God giving the nation of Israel just what they wanted. And it's not a pretty picture. Verse 11 to 14. I'm going to send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Do you remember these? Uh, there's so much language here that's, that's evocative of the plagues. And here, another one of those plagues is famine. And do you remember Amaziah, that uh, Archbishop of Canterbury type figure back in chapter 7? What is it he says? Don't prophesy any more. We don't want you here. Stop it, Amos. And so God gives them their prayer. Just what they want. A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. God goes into hiding. And if he doesn't speak, how are we going to find him? What did these people know? They knew that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do you survive when there's a famine of the word? And then it gets worse. Because verse 12, they wander around, they're drunk, they're staggering from sea to sea. From the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean, from east to west. And wander from north to east. North to east sounds a bit weird, isn't it? Why don't they wander from north to south? Well, I think it's because if you look at where they're going from coast to coast, from east to west, north to east, they're doing all the points of the, com- of the compass except south. So these people are staggering waiting for the word of the Lord. And what's the one place they don't go? The one place they don't go is south, because what is south? Well, it's Jerusalem. It's the place where God lives. It's the place where he's in his temple, where truth really is. Does that speak to you? Are you wandering around saying, God, where are you? Where are you? I need your word, but I'm stumbling around. But the only place I won't go is the place where I know you are. I won't go to your word. I think there's something in our pride that gets attacked here. Because we'll go anywhere except where the truth really is. Are you comfortable as a seeker of truth? Or do you want to go to where you know truth is? Because as Christians, we know that truth is in Jesus. If there's anything of that, then don't delay. You see, these people run to and fro, but in Amos' day, they shan't find it. Now, that is not the case today. Today, we're told, seek the Lord and he shall be found. But back then, for the people of Israel, for that nation, the word of the Lord had left the building. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's shocking. 
He's a loving, merciful, gracious God. Yes, he is. And so is Amos' God. He's been astoundingly patient. He's always waiting, always willing. But now it seems that they've just pushed it too far. And God's word is removed. And we discover we want it. We need it. So we turn to other idols. That's what verse uh, 13 and 14 is about. But those things can't sustain us. They shall never, uh, never let us live. You see, it's a terrible picture and we long for the next chapter. We long for some hope. But today we're not there. Today we're still in chapter 8. So what do we take from that? As people of God on the other side of the cross, what do we take from that? I've got just a few things. First of all, I want to remind you of where we are in biblical history. Because here in Amos, we're before Christ. Before Christ. God's chosen people through whom salvation would come were the people of Israel. And it's them who are being judged. If you're struggling with the way that God sees you, perhaps you're not a Christian yet. Or perhaps you worry about your salvation. God is not about to cut you off. That's not what this chapter says. This is a message for a nation, for Israel. For them, time was ripe for judgment. And judgment came. Time was ripe for a famine of the word. And there was a famine of the word for 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New when Jesus came. 400 years without hearing God's voice. This nation experienced a famine of the word. We cannot simply apply this to ourselves and see ourselves in that place of judgment. This is not saying that God has had enough with us. But it is a warning to us. This is judgment on the nation, not on you and I as the people of God. But if I put that caveat in there, I also want you to hear this. We can't simply ignore this message. Because if this passage speaks to anybody today, it speaks to the Christian church to God's chosen people. But so far as it speaks to us today, it speaks not as a judgment, but as a warning. This is what happened to God's people back then. We need to make sure that we're not guilty of the same sin, the same hardness of heart. If you're still struggling with this, and believe you me, I am, the one way that I tried to see it this week is like this. Put yourself back 2,000 years ago to Good Friday. Just imagine you were there at the time. You'd seen Jesus on trial, nailed to a cross, hanging there, dying. If you'd been there at the time, you had no idea that Easter Sunday was coming. No idea at all. And that's where we are in Amos 8. 
we are at Good Friday. We're at the place where judgment is coming and we see what God is doing to take that judgment from us. But at this point, we've got no idea that there's good news, that Easter Sunday's coming. We have to wait for Amos 9 for anything of that. God's rescue plan would have seemed pretty shambolic on Good Friday, wouldn't it? It was a dark day. And as God gave these words to Amos, I wonder if he was thinking about a day when the day would turn dark at noon. That's what he says here. Do you see the the, the echoes of Good Friday? Verse 9, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I wonder, was he thinking about a day when the, the day would turn dark at noon, when his own son would hang on a cross for the sins of the nation, for the disregard of the poor and the dishonesty in their business, for their lack of compassion? Was he thinking of a day when there would be mourning for a son? A very, very precious son. Was he thinking of a day when there would be silence in heaven and silence in the temple because the Son of Man was raised on a cross? You see, we gloss over this chapter and we think it speaks judgment, and it does for the nation of Israel. But for us, it points us to Good Friday. But it leaves us in Good Friday without knowing about Easter Sunday. So what's the warning for us? Well, first of all, sin matters. We need to look deep in our hearts and we need to say, God, give us a heart for the poor. Let us love each other. Root out that rubbish that's in me so that I am a wholehearted person. Secondly, we are blessed because we do not have a famine of the word. We have God's word. So the application for me is, wow, I want to know what God is saying. I want to get into his word and I want to understand it and I want to see hope and truth and life. I want to see the good news because the great news is that this is not the end. Amos 8 is not the end. There is good news. Thirdly, if I haven't yet responded, if I don't understand, if I haven't got it all clear, then I need to ask myself this, have I got enough? You see, for all his love and grace and mercy and patience, at some point, God looked at Israel and said, enough. Have we recognized the rescuer? Have we turned from our sin to Christ, accepted the reality of his death upon the cross, that we might have all the benefits of Easter Sunday, of new life and triumph and sharing in his victory? You see, the Christian gospel allows us to experience Amos 8 and to move through it. 
to sit there on Good Friday and to look at the cross and to give thanks for Jesus' death, but know that Easter Sunday is coming. You see, on Good Friday, Jesus takes the punishment that we deserved. We too are judged guilty, but Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to take it for them. I'm going to take that punishment for you. Because they're mine and because I love them. And so he's taken the punishment. But we await the life and the victory that comes from Easter Sunday. We long for the story to continue. But for now, we wait at the cross. Let's pray. Loving Father, I um, really struggle with some of this. But I thank you for the warning that it gives us. Thank you for the picture that it gives us of that Good Friday when you gave your son the, the punishment that we deserve fell on him. And we pray that you would give us patience and perseverance to wait for Easter Sunday. To know that in the depths of our mourning, in the depths of our discomfort, in the depths of our sin, that Easter Sunday is coming. And we pray that you'd give us hope as we seek to walk with you. Amen.